0: this chapter 34 exodus chapter 34 we will not be here forever but this is kind of our ongoing assignment you go oh i forgot about that okay well uh, your ongoing assignment to remember this statement of god okay it's at a very difficult time in the history of the nation of israel the nation of israel had created their own god and were going to worship their own way Uh, which violated all sorts of commandments that God had very clearly stated with his own mouth in their hearing. And uh, the nation had suffered some loss. There was some judgment of individuals who it seems like they continued to hold on to their idolatry uh, after they were confronted with it. And uh, they were executed by the priests that went through. But Moses leading this people, realizing that he needs help, and uh, discouraged at the fact that he is going to be the leader of these two million people that seem to wander their own way. Just ask God for a blessing. And it's this just to see your glory. Okay, being refreshed or encouraged by the fact of seeing God's glory. And God could have shown some sort of magnificent physical display of his power, and, and that might have been encouraging to Moses. But what he felt was a very important for him was to have words that he could grab onto. I and mean, we sometimes think if we could have an experience that it would be better for us. I mean, this is the whole thing that Peter argues in the second uh, epistle that he wrote. And, and uh, he talks about the fact that he was able to see the glory of God. You know, he was able to see the transformed uh, Christ at the transfiguration. Uh, he was able to see a, a reflection of his glory temporarily. But then he says we have this more sure word of Prophecy. Something to hold on to, words to hold on to, uh, that we can uh, understand God rather than just experience. We have some sort of communication that allows us to file things away. Well, Moses has an opportunity to see God's glory, but God says, I'm not going to let you see my glory. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to declare my name. Now, he does declare his name, but with declaring his name, he describes who he is what that name really means when you hear the name the lord the characteristics are the things that you should understand this is what he's emphasizing whenever you hear this name this is what god is like and moses only saw the after parts it's the idea that he gets to see the after effects of god going by but he remembers for a long time the words that were said here and you say why do you know that because he's going to use them eventually in the passage we're going to look at tonight but i want us to go back to this exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 and i want us to see if we can actually read this and perhaps some of you are able to get to the point of quoting this because this is a good two verses to have in your head because there are times where you're going to feel like certain things are going on and then this verse can just ring out in your mind this is what your god is like the devil always suggests all sorts of things but you can have solid words to say no my god is like this so we've been working on uh, exodus 34 6 about halfway through where it starts off the lord the lord god and right on through uh, verse number seven there so Uh, Let's just read through, starting off with the first Lord, and go all the way down to verse 7, and some of you may actually be able to quote this. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty... Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So, that is a a verse that we're going to be working Sunday night on different places in the scripture where this statement comes up. It's used uh, by individuals in real life situations uh, and used uh, sometimes in the context where good things are happening sometimes where bad things are happening and they're going to use this but this is the the faith statement they're confident that this is true and they're laying a claim on these type of statements that god has made uh, in the midst of their situation so you say well what's the situation we need to look at here this evening that this is used in real life we're god's a glorious statement about himself is declared and how it was used by somebody and for that we need to turn over to numbers chapter 13 numbers chapter 13 is a story where well we oftentimes uh we hear this and we talk about the 12 spies you know and then this little children's song comes through your head 10 Twelve men went to spy in Canaan, ten were bad and two were good. What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giants big and straw, some saw grapes and clusters long. And then there were some that saw that God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. And so it kind of makes the story, you know, that's the thing that goes in our head. And you kind of go, oh, okay, you know, kind of a, you know, a lighthearted story, but it's really not a lighthearted story. This is, this is a, a point in Israel's history where something traumatic happens. They're, they're standing on the cusp of the land that God had promised some 400 years before to Abraham. God had defined the boundaries and said, okay, this is what's going to happen. Uh, Your your descendants are going to go down to Egypt and I'm going to give uh, the people of Canaan time to repent, but I'm going to come and use your children in judgment and they're going to gain this land. I mean, this is the promise that God had made. That's why it's called the promised land. Okay, That's the land that God had said, you're going to receive this. And uh, they had come to this, and as you see, for these people, they are in the land. They're in a place that is not immediately mentioned, uh, though uh, you have in verse 26 this uh, statement uh, that's called Kadesh uh, or Kadesh uh, that they're at. You say, where are they standing? Well, if you have a Bible in your ma- or back of your Bible, excuse me, a map in the back of your Bible, you'll note that this is uh, south uh, of the land of Israel it's even further south than the city of Beersheba you go. what's so important about Beersheba well whenever you have the length of the land referred to you talk about from Dan to Beersheba and so it's basically saying from north to south well the nation of Israel is standing south of Beersheba it's the easy way to go into the land Okay, if, you make a land, if you make an invasion of another country, it's a whole lot easier to invade by land than it is over water. Okay, the nation of Israel eventually, 40 years later, are going to accomplish something by going over the Jordan River. They're invading in a foreign country with 2 million people going over a body of water which really shows the impossibility of what goes on. But reasonably, they're standing there at the promised land, at the border, just there, ready to go in. And you have to remember the whole book of Numbers is about numbers. Okay, we forget this, that at the beginning of the book of Numbers, you have a listing off of each one of the tribes, and every male that's 20 years or older listed there, and you go, what's going on there? It's not just merely that we need numbers. It's laying out for us that God is preparing this nation to go to war, to go to battle. That's why you get to the end of the book of Numbers, and you have this same count uh, it's only like two or 3,000 difference as far as the people that are there in that army. But it's, it's announcing the fact that Israel's getting ready to go to war, that God has got them set up to do this to gain a land that had been promised. And this land that uh, was promised to them was not uh, a, a land that was, well, not of high quality you know you get this desert piece of property you oftentimes had this uh in deals and treaties throughout history even in the united states history where it's like here we're going to give you this piece of land and it's yours and it's a barren wasteland no this land is prime real estate when you go through and the men are going through the land they find out that this is a good land that's how it's described it's a good land and so when you're considering this story and you see those kind of details, you're going, God's got them ready to bring them into the promised land, to fulfill the promise that he made uh, to Abraham. And he's bringing them to a land that's not just, okay, uh, second best. No, this is the best you could possibly have. The, the best land that anybody could have, you're going to receive this now the nation of israel does what they're supposed to do they uh treat this as an invasion and so what he does is uh what the nation of israel does is they gather 12 men to go in and spy out the land as you get a lay of the land they've never been here before none of their countrymen have been here before so they're getting an idea of what they're going to be facing as they go into the land And you see Moses in verse 17, he says this, he sent uh, these individuals out to spy the land of Canaan and said unto them, get you up out of the southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. And what the land is, is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. And what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, And what land is, whether it is fat or lean, whether it be uh, wood therein or not. And be ye of good courage, and bring the fruit of the land. Uh, Now was the time of the first ripe grapes. You say, so when is this taking place? Well, it's taking place uh, in late July. That's when they harvest grapes in Israel, the first ripe grapes. That's when it would have happened. So uh, the nation of Israel is not too far removed from Sinai. They had left Sinai in the late spring say how do we know it's late spring well they celebrated passover which was just something we celebrated right recently Uh, and they start packing things up after that and move out so uh, it's just taken them a month or two to get to this point to the southern border of the land and so here they are two months removed basically from being at mount sinai standing at the promised land uh, going in at a time where harvest is collected so there's all sorts of food there to be gotten for these people so you read the story of what they do and we might get lost in some of the details and the place names you just kind of read them and you kind of glaze over as you read them because you're not sure where these things are at but it does say that they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of zin unto rehob uh, as the men come to hamath and you go what's that well they basically go from the southern part of israel and go about 250 miles north and then turn around and come back. Okay, so this is not just merely a a short trip. This is a uh, lengthy trip where they go out and spy the land. They go north, uh, from south to north. They go even north of the boundaries of the land of Israel to see what's beyond that and come back south again. Uh, much of the story seems to focus on the city of Hebron. And you go, why is that? Well, the city that you find uh, mentioned there is one that the nation of Israel had a connection to. It's the only piece of land that any Israelite owned at that point. Go, what do you mean? Well, Abraham bought a piece of land. Do remember the story? It was a grave. It's located in Hebron. Uh, and so this is the only piece of property the nation of Israel actually Technically owns, even though it's 400 years later, but it's a place that Abraham spent much of his time in, a city that he had been in. But you see in verse 23 they came down uh, under the brook of Eshcol and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between two upon a staff, and they bought pomegranates and of the figs. Uh, So we oftentimes forget the fact that they bring more than grapes. They bring pomegranates. And if you look at uh, anything in the nation of Israel's uh, history, as far as their architecture, the things that they're digging up right now, it's usually decorated in pomegranates. Uh, This region is known for that. Uh, And of the figs. And uh, they come and the place that they called uh, the brook Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes, that word Eshcol just means cluster, which the children of Israel cut from thence and they return from searching after 40 days. So they they bring the abundance of the land with them. If you can imagine a cluster of grapes having to be carried by uh, two individuals on a pole, that's quite a cluster of grapes. You know, you don't normally come home from the store with clusters like that uh it's usually a number of different clusters in a small container but this case you have uh this large uh cluster that they found and they said well let's just show the abundance of what this land has so they come back and and you say well what what went on here in this report okay you know 10 were bad and two were good but what is actually said in this report that they bring back verse 26 And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel into the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh. And they brought back word unto them, unto all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Now understand when it says it's a land that flows with milk and honey. It's not that they're going through uh and finding these rivers of milk that are there and that they're finding, you know, rivers of honey just going through and they're, you know, like swimming in this. It's just simply referring to the fact that this is a land that flows with milk. It's a good place for pasturing. It's a good place in a region. You think about the the Middle East. If you can find place to pasture animals, if there's green grass, this is a a very good place. That you're going to have a lot of milk that comes from this. And then you talk about flowing with honey. Did they have honey there? They did, but it's probably more of a reference to the fact that it's filled with fruit that they would often make into sugar-based things that it is a land that flows with milk and honey. This is a fruitful land. And all of them acknowledge this. They say, this is a good land. None of them go through it and go, well, you know, it it, it was some really bad parts, you know, whatever. When it comes to the abundance of provision that's there, they acknowledge it's a great thing. But the statement changes in verse 28. In fact, in the Hebrew language, it's pretty extreme, which is unusual for Hebrew language. It's pretty extreme, but we read it in verse 28. Nevertheless, you know, this is this, well, but there's this problem. Okay, it's really, really great. But here's the contrast. The people be strong that dwell in the land. The cities are walled and very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And if you look at the land of Israel, there's a mountain chain that just goes right down the center of it. They live in the mountains. And then you have the Canaanites that dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And so they immediately go, well, there's a problem. There's people who live there that we're going to have to fight. It's not just that this is an empty land. We've got to fight for this land now this obviously caused a stir because verse 30 caleb had to still the people okay they start murmuring at this they may have been excited by wow look at all this fruit and everything but then this report and they start murmuring and complaining and caleb has to silence them and just simply say this let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it you know we we can handle this god's promised this to us we can overcome the difficulties this is a good land." But verse 31, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched to the children of Israel, saying, The land which with... The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in their own sight as grasshoppers, so we were in their sight." what you have going on here is pretty much a contest and we don't have all the details but you can imagine this you have 10 people basically saying this is a horrible thing why are we even doing this and two that are trying to say no we can conquer the land and I was reading one commentator on this and he said well the 10 are able to outshout the two They're able to outshout the two and by their majority number, they convince uh, the nation of Israel. And it goes right into verse uh, one of chapter 14. I mean, there's no divide in the story. It just goes right into it in verse one. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night. I mean, this is an all-night thing where they are weeping. And the, the word for weeping here is a strong word. It's not just that they're, you know, they're, they're complaining. There is wailing going on in the camp. And this goes on all night. And it, it's the next morning, and all the children murmured against Moses and against Aaron and the whole congregation said unto them, and this is a really incredible statement. Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Really? I mean, in any other occasion, they wouldn't say, oh yes, we want to die in the wilderness, or yes, we loved Egypt so much that we wanted to die working there no that is not what they had declared they were so excited to leave the land of egypt in fact they had been wailing in order to leave egypt that's why god responded as you read the story in exodus but they make this exaggerated claim i will say this when we think at times where things are not going good we say unreasonable things and i was thinking about this and I'm, I'm remembering the statement of elijah we studied him uh, uh, a few weeks ago and elijah's statement at mount sinai uh, on his way there is he just simply asked the lord oh kill me really is that what you want but we sometimes think in our circumstances or we allow our circumstances to overwhelm us to say things that in reasonable times we would never say and the nation of israel is at that point where they're saying things that they would never say in any other occasion but because they feel like that they have been shortchanged that god has done something wrong they're complaining and saying it would have been better for us to just die in this wilderness in egypt rather than to go into the promised land and at least die fighting for something that's good they're not willing to say that verse three wherefore hath the lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children be uh, should be a prey now that's an important statement if we go into this land our wives and our children are going to be a prey they're going to be spoils of war they're going to go as slaves Were it not better for us to return unto Egypt? And they said unto one another, let us make a captain and let us return unto Egypt. I mean, they all of a sudden have come up with a new plan and they say, well, let's eliminate Moses and let's eliminate Aaron and get rid of them because they don't know what they're doing and let's go march back to the land of slavery where we were at that we had been released from and put ourselves back into slavery. They're rejecting God's leader, and they're rejecting God's plan, and what they're really doing is they're rejecting God's redemption for them. God had redeemed them with might and power, with the raising of his arm. He had done this, and they're going, we don't like his redemption. We would like to go back to the old life. We don't like what God's given to us in our redemption And it's verse 6 that that Joshua, who's now uh, mentioned in great detail, you thought Caleb was the only one saying this, but Joshua the son of Nun, verse 6, and Caleb the uh, son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched out the land, rent their clothes. They spake into the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land which we passed through to search it. It's an exceeding good land. I mean, it's not just a good land. They did something in Hebrew that's unusual. They actually uh, used an extra descriptive term it's an exceeding good land if the lord delight in us then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which floweth with milk and honey only rebel not against the lord neither fear ye the people of the land for they are bred for us their defense is departed from them and the lord is with us fear them not i mean this is a statement of faith we've got god with us and you go, well, could they actually say that? My imagination is this in this story, that they would say that God is with us, that they could point back uh, to where the tent is at and see the, cloud, the cloudy pillar that is there and point, God is with us. He's visibly displaying himself all the time that he's with us. He's with us and he'll go with us into the land. Do you think that stopped the people? No, it doesn't. Verse number 10, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones. You say, what's this? Is this a mob action? No, actually stoning back then was a deliberate judicial decision. They decided they were going to do them in. The people did. There's a deliberate decision on their part that they're going to stone them. And then it's at that point where God, well, displays his glory in one way. You say, what's that? Look at the end of verse 10. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of congregation before all the children of Israel. It's not just this cloudy pillar. There is this sudden brightness that is displayed from this tabernacle that displays the fact that God is there and it stops everyone in what they're doing because they suddenly realize, yes, God is there. That's the one thing they've been forgetting about. We're gonna go into the land and it's going to be a bad thing for us to go into the land and how are we gonna accomplish this in our own strength and, and whatever, and they forget that God's with them and all of a sudden, in an instant, they suddenly realize God's there because God steps in. And as you read verse 11, you have to kind of go back to what we read in Acts chapter 32, 33, and 34 with the golden calf incident because it's the same type of discussion that, or statements that God is going to make about destroying the people. Okay, verse 11 The Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? Okay, what was provoking him? Provoking him to do judgment. Because if we remember the statements about God, God naturally shows his mercy and his goodness and his kindness and his truth. You have to provoke his wrath. You have to do something. And this nation has done this. They provoked his wrath. And verse 11, continue. How long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? I've given them water daily. They can walk out in their porch and find food on their, their doorstep there. All of these things that he's done. Verse 12 I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And it's at this point you see the character of Moses. He's one who cares for the people, and he's also one who knows the promises of God. He knows God's character. Verse 13 Moses said unto the Lord, then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up of this people and the might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land, for they have heard that thou our Lord art among this people, and thou art seen face to face, and that thou cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. He simply says this, if you do this, if you wipe out this nation of people, the Egyptians are afraid of who you are. They understand your power. They were underneath it. They suffered the plagues. And what they have done in their communications at the land of Canaan, which there were ties uh, between Egypt and Canaan, they've been telling the people in that land of all the things that you've done and all the things that have been going on and they're communicating with that people and so if you were suddenly to take the people that you brought out of the land without a war being fought and you destroy them what are they going to think of you as a god you save people to destroy them but he goes on verse 15 i mean he's he's making statements here that uh, the Lord is just seeing what Moses is going to do in a situation like this. Now, if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard of the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people in the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. Verse 17, and now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying okay so he's going to go and say okay god you do this but i'm, I'm going to take you back to something that you've said previously and here's what you said about your character who you are verse 18 this is a paraphrase of what's said there but you get the, the statement look at how he describes it the lord is long-suffering what does that mean? He's long of nostrils. He doesn't immediately respond. He holds off judgment that could be instantaneous because there are reasons perhaps of giving people a chance to repent and do those type of things. God, you're a God who's long-suffering. You are, look at the verse number uh, 18 and continue, you are of great mercy. Okay, You're moved with compassion upon individuals. You're loyal to your people. You promise certain things to them. You don't break your promises. You're loyal to them. You forgive iniquity and transgression. But realize this, Moses doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, oh, you're a God who just looks over sin. No, passes over sin. No, he brings up the other part of what God said. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children, the children unto the third and fourth generation. You've said this is what your character is like. You will be long-suffering with individuals, but you will judge sin. But what I'm asking you in verse number 19, pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now verse 20 the lord said i have pardoned according to thy word but as truly as i live all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the lord because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles which i did in egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted or tested me these 10 times and have not hearkened unto my voice surely they shall not see the land which i swore unto their fathers neither shall any of them that provoked me see it but my servant caleb because he had another spirit with him and they have followed me fully him will i bring into the land wherein he went and his seed shall possess it possess it you say what about joshua that comes later but he says caleb i'll protect him so what you have is that God actually responds to Moses and goes, I am like that. I will pardon iniquity and forgive iniquity, but I will also hand out judgment. I'll do both at the same time. And this is a, a, a wonderful story that it, it shows the balance that God has uh, in his character. I mean, just continue the story here. Verse 26. Uh, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they have murmured against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. And as you say, Well, what did they say? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we died in the wilderness? What does God say? Verse 29. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I spare, swore unto you to dwell therein, save Caleb the son of jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun, but your little ones which ye said shall be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you and your carcasses, they shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. And after the number of days in which ye searched the land, even 40 days, each day for a year, shall you bear your iniquities even 40 years and ye shall know my breach of promise. Now let's just stop here for a second, and what you begin to see is a balance in what God says. What God is, that he's a God who is long-suffering and great uh, and abundant in goodness and truth, and he's keeping mercy for thousands, you see this side of God. Because he had every right to judge instantaneously. He could have let these people die right there. And would he have been fair in doing that? Would he have been just in doing that? And the answer is yes. He would have been absolutely right in doing that. But what he says is this I'm going to give you 40 years. Now, granted, not everyone died the 40th year. Uh, they had people dying throughout this time that are over the age of 20. But God is long-suffering. He does pardon iniquities in the sense that he doesn't give people what they truly deserve. But you also see on the other side of this that god does visit judgment upon individuals and sometimes it affects people to the third and fourth generation he says this your children are going to have to suffer because of your whoredoms you're following after other gods and 40 years you had those children that had to wander the wilderness because of their parents failures god said this listen you you will suffer uh, and there will be consequences for your children and children's children because of your sin but even then god is going to be good to the children because they're even though they're going to suffer because of their parents he's going to give them great good good things now you see on the the other side of this verse 37 excuse me verse 36 and the men which moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land even those men that did bring up an evil report upon the land died by a plague before the lord now what he does do is he instantaneously judges the spies he does show that he judges sin these are men who tried to turn the whole nation of israel against god and he immediately judges them showing that, yes, I'm a God who deals in justice for people who say, well, let's not do what God says. Let's not believe what he says. Let's not do what he says. God instantaneously judged. But in this story, you see a balance of God's mercy and his grace and in his judgment. Forty years 40 years, God's still going to go through and lead them through the wilderness and provide for them day after day after day, except for the Sabbath days. But he's going to provide manna, provide them the food that they need. You say, is he still a good God? Yeah, he's still a good God. Even to sinners. People are undeserving people who don't deserve his mercy, God's still going to be kind to them and he's going to be long-suffering with them. I've wondered what conversations were like in some of the tents and some of the families over the years where they may have discussed it that we made this mistake, but God's been at least gracious in us and giving us more life. We didn't deserve it. Now, you do see the end of the story that the people are rather foolish. Actually, it's they're presumptuous, verse 44. They presume to go up and battle the nation of, uh, well, the Amalekites and the Canaanites and that type of thing. And they tried to do this, and God says, no, I'm not going to be with you. And they go up and start fighting and realize that God's not with them, and they lose a number of individuals that didn't believe what God said here. You're going to wander the wilderness for 40 years, and they go, no, we don't want that. So they go up and fight, and some of them die, and they come back, and they become a part of the people who are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, this whole story goes on the fact that Moses understands what God's character is like, and that's what the story displays. It's what God's character is like with people who are just like us. Okay, I'm amazed at how often in my own thinking, and I'm sure you've had it, that we always look at the disciples and shake our head. You know, they're following Jesus, and we just kind of go, oh, I can't believe they did that. And we sometimes do that with the nation of Israel, and we just kind of go, oh, really? Didn't, you know, know, I, I can't believe you would do this. Don't you understand God's really, really good? And then we look at our life, and we're like the disciples, and we're like the nation of Israel all the time because we're not any different than they are. Well, well, we're 3,500 years removed from them. Uh, Humanity and the nature of human beings is the same. You know, we may have improved in technology and all sorts of things, but our personalities and what we're like, we have a, a, a core in our being that is flesh, that hates God, that likes our own way. And even when we're redeemed, we still have that, and we sometimes let it get the best of us. We don't believe that God what God says is true. We don't believe certain things about him. And we forget that God is a good God to people who are stubborn and rebellious just like us. He's still good to us he's still gracious to us far longer than he should be and if he really was uh, going to carry out judgment on us one is described the passage this way the balance between God's love and God's justice and judgment must be maintained in tension God's love and long-suffering would be preserved and is allowing the rebellious generation to survive in the wilderness for 40 years, wherein he would still provide for them faithfully. But this was also their judgment in that all those of the former generation would eventually die in that desolate world and not inherit the promised land or experience the fullness of God's blessing. They were not willing to accept God's judgment. Uh, They went and did their own thing, but found out that they couldn't do anything without God's help. But the children that were under 20 still suffered because of the parents' sin, but not on the same level that their parents did. As we said, they're going to enjoy the blessing of God. But because of their parents' actions, they did certain things and well the consequences were there and we have to understand this that yes sometimes we do certain things and god is gracious and merciful to us but there are consequences but even the consequences are gracious god doesn't give us exactly what we deserve when we do wrong and we talk about the sins of our youth And you think of it as a a teenager or uh, a young adult, some of the dumb things you did. And that you still survived. Now, there may have been some scars, things like that. But the truth be told, God was extremely merciful to you. And you go through the years and you begin to see God has been far merciful to me uh, than he has been judging of me. His mercy has been great. That he's allowed me to live the life that I have even though I'm a sinner and I sin against him day in and day out. God's gracious. And even when he hands out judgment to me in this life and he does things to chasten me, he's gracious and kind even in that. Even in his justice, he's compassionate. You know I, I really didn't understand this statement until I became a parent. I, I was in a household where we still had uh, what you might call corporal punishment. We had the board of education that was applied to the seat of instruction in my household. And my parents didn't say this often, but there were occasions where I heard them say, This hurts me more than it hurts you. You know, I'm thinking, I'm the one receiving the Board of Education. How could you say something like that? But as a parent, I recognized the fact that there is no delight in handing out judgment. And so even in chastening of our daughter that we had at certain times and occasions, there's a compassion that's there. We have a heavenly Father who's in heaven, who, who does have to judge us and chasten us to call us back to himself, but he does it with the compassion of a heavenly Father. And there are times where he has to punish, bring us back in line to remind us of what we've done, But we have to have this balance that God is a God who's long suffering. He is compassionate. He is one who will pardon sin, but he also does visit judgment. And sometimes in both of those things, even when we're getting punished for sin, there's a compassion of God. And it's seen right here in this passage. I'm gonna give you 40 years. Even though you rebelled against me, I'm going to give you 40 years to enjoy my provision and my help and my aid. And you get to enjoy that for 40 years, even though you're deserving of immediate judgment. I'm going to be gracious to you. Now we'll say in contrast to this, you've got Moses and Joshua and Caleb that are part of this. I'm amazed at what Moses is able to pray, but he was able to pray with power because he knew his God. I mean he has a situation like this and he has walked with God so often that he's able to you read the conversations here that he has with God this wasn't like one time this happened and then there was you know another occasion a year later where he talks with God no he's talking with God all the time this is just one of those pressure situations and you find him talking to God and what he's laying out before God is here's what you're like and here's what you are and I'm asking on the basis of what I know about you Moses was an individual that you ought to study more often he was a person who walked with God and fellowshiped with God and he did it all the time and he did what he did and the things that he prayed for and the things that he did throughout his uh, leadership was because he knew what his God was like I'm confident that he came back because this is a statement in a pressure situation that just came out in his prayer to God it's something that he had considered in good times quiet times that God is like this that his quiet times he had considered, my God is like this. And then when it comes to the pressure situations, he's going back to what he had done in the quiet times of walking with God and communicating with him, that he's able to pour out statements like this and say, you're a God like this and like this and like this. So you say, why is it good for us to memorize passages like Exodus 34, 6-7? Because you do this in quiet times and easy times so that when we get to those pressure times and all of the the difficulties we might face you can come to God and go I've contemplated this and I've considered this over and over and over again and God you're like this and I'm going to pray on the basis of what I know your character to be because you've declared this this is who you are and so from Moses's standpoint you have a person who is actually responding to what he knows about God and praying like he should In direct contrast to a whole group of people who are, well, doing their own thing, they aren't really caring what God thinks. In fact, they're suggesting that he's other than that. But even with that, God is a gracious and compassionate God. Moses knew God intimately. He knew him as a consuming fire. He also knew his warm embrace. We tend to focus on the flashes of God's wrath. Moses reminds us that while the wrath is real, it is long-delayed. The most remarkable thing about the wrath of God is how much provocation he tolerates before he finally acts in righteous judgment. So for us, uh, hopefully we're like Moses where we've got these things in our mind that we know what our God's like. We're not like the nation of Israel who didn't know their God and suggested things about him. But even with people like that, God's gracious. You now there are times where our, where our knowledge of God's a little bit flawed God's gracious to us even in those times. But in his actions and activities, it ought to call us to understand him better. And so, wonderful story, understanding the balance of God. He judges, but yet even in his judgment, he's gracious. And so we ought to get that balance in our mind too, that he's extremely gracious, but he is also going to judge. But in judgment, he is gracious. So let's make sure we know our God, the statements about him, and find that perfect balance and understanding who he is and what he's like lord we thank you thank you for stories like this we see your mercy day in and day out we incur your wrath we we deserve greater judgment than what we get but you're compassionate our time's merciful to us but sometimes in your compassion for us you let us have what we deserve give us judgment you chasten us but if you chastened us for every failure we have we would be consumed so may we see your compassion for us your mercy towards us your graciousness to us throughout the day As we go throughout this week, may we see at times where we fail that you're still a kind God to us, that you provide us with air to breathe and food to eat and life and energy. You still give us these things. That's not to call us to continue to sin. You've given us great grace, but as Romans tells us, we don't continue in sin that grace may abound. That's something that should never be in our thinking. But Lord, help us to to be people who know you're a God who loves us, that you're faithful to us, you'll never leave us nor forsake us, you promise us those type of things in the Scripture. And no matter what our failures are, you're going to be gracious and compassionate. And at times where you display your judgment and chastening towards us, may we be drawn back to the fact that you're a gracious, compassionate, long-suffering, merciful God. May we know you better. May we know you like Moses knew you, fellowshipping with you all the time. And may we know that you are a God that is like this, what you've declared about yourself. And this we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.